We'll turn to read a few verses from the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Dead, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And as we go into God's word, if you can open your Bibles back at 2 Corinthians 5. <coughs> Second Corinthians five verse ten. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a day coming soon. There is a night coming soon. I don't know when it will be. In five years or twenty years or a hundred years. But there is a day coming soon in the life of this earth that will be unlike any other day. People will be working. People will be traveling. People will be sleeping. People will be laboring in the field, as Jesus says. And there will be a storm on that day. There will be earthquakes on that day. There will be light in the heavens 
when the heavenly bodies are shaken, there will be confusion and the stock market will crash. There will be things that do not work. The whole world will come to a halt. And when you switch on your television, you'll see news reports of calamity all over the earth, more than you've seen before. And you'll hear news reports of events in Israel. And all of the BBC cameras will be in Israel. And there will be commotion there, panic, fear, destruction. And on the television screen, you will see a man. And that man is Jesus Christ. That day is coming in the history of the world. That's what's on Paul's mind as he closes out this section of 2 Corinthians 5. We have seen that he's encouraged because he can see the unseen. He can see the glory of God in the face of Christ when he reads the books of Moses, the scriptures. He can see the grace of God portrayed there and his soul can see a person emerging. He can see that his body will be raised from the dead and that he will have no more pain and he will live forevermore. He can see a weight of glory, a heavy glory that will be given to him. And we saw this morning that this man knows the love of a saviour who 2,000 years ago in Israel died for him. A real event, a real man who died so that Paul would not be lost. So that I wouldn't be lost and that you wouldn't be lost. That he saw this great act of love in the Son of God laying down his life and his soul, not just to the Romans or to the Jews, but to the judgment of his Father in our place. That's the Gospel. But his confidence is seen in another thing. That he doesn't boast in appearances like the Corinthians do and like the world does today. Many people have many opinions about Paul as he's alive, but to Paul, ultimately only one opinion matters to him. He looks through the glory of Christ and the world to come and the glory to come and he sees a tribunal, he sees a judgment and to him that is the only judgment that matters. And I hope as we look at God's word right now, it will become the only thing that matters to us. For God created us. And God alone can make a judgment about the moral condition of our hearts. God gives us breath and he takes it away. God is in control of all of us right now. And the word of God tells us that when we die, when he chooses that moment, he brings our soul back to him. And we have to give an account for what we are before him. So we see that Paul says that we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's see together a few things that we can draw from what Paul says in this passage. We see that there is a judgment. That the world will not go on and on. 
that the day I just described to you will come. There will be a point where everything must stop. And the Apostle says elsewhere that it is appointed for all men to die and then the judgment. And when we die, if we're in Christ, we immediately are made perfect in holiness and glory and we go into the presence of God in the glory above. If we are not in Christ, when we die, we are immediately plummeted into darkness, into despair, and into punishment. But Paul says here that although it says we must die once and then the judgment, the judgment he's speaking about is the one that will come at the end. God makes a decision. God deals with us based on our profession and the reality of what we are at the moment of death. And we will spend a time in either of these two places. But he has appointed a day when he will raise the dead and call all men and women before him. That's what we read about in Revelation 20, where God's throne is seen and all men and women are called before him and he makes a judgment. This is what the Old Testament calls the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that we must look to and be ready for and that is always in front of us ready to break in. It will be a dreadful day and it will be a great day. The day of judgment. Paul says here that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When we read in Revelation, the great throne had the Lord God Almighty, the Father, upon it. He is the one who, John says, the whole earth flees away from his face. Paul says here, more specifically, that it's Christ that will judge this earth. You see that, the judgment seat of Christ, it belongs to him. And Paul had been before many judgment seats. He had been before Agrippa, he had been before Felix, and he appeared twice before the emperor Nero himself. An awful judgment seat. Someone who had absolute power to do with whatever he wanted with Paul. The head of the Roman Empire, a brutal, merciless empire. Paul had been before these men being judged for his ministry. And these men sat on judgment seats. And that's what Paul's referring to here, the Roman judgment seat. And what he's basically saying is that as important as these earthly rulers are, and as, as powerful as their verdicts can be towards Paul, they are nothing compared to the judgment seat of Christ. And he knows his theology, he knows his Old Testament, and he knows about the ministry of Christ. And what Christ said about himself, what John the Baptist said about Christ, that all things have been committed by the Father into the hands of Christ. And that all judgment 
has been committed by the Father into the hands of Christ. So it's Christ we need to deal with because he is the God-man. He, he saved us, yes, but when he was exalted and glorified, he was given the reins. He was given power and authority over all things. He becomes the head of humanity, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus, before he ascended, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. This man, this Jewish man, born in Nazareth, who we described this morning, this man who is more than a man, who is unlike anyone else that's ever lived, God manifest in the flesh, his only son, the eternal son, who has looked into the face of the Father from all eternity, the Holy One, who hates sin in the same way that the Father does, who has the same mercy that the Father does, but that who knows judgment is necessary. And what we're told by Paul here, and what he says in his other letters, is that all of this verdict, this judgment, has been given and deposited by God into the hands of the judge of all men. When Paul was preaching in Athens, and not long before he wrote this letter, he told the Athenian philosophers, the great men of the day, that there, there is a man appointed by God who will judge the whole world. He said that in his sermon, and that person is Christ. He doesn't call him here Jesus. He doesn't here call him Savior, but Christ. His messianic title, the title of a king, the title of one who rules over others, the title of one who the Psalms tell us will dash and break his enemies with a rod of iron and smash them like pottery. The king, the warrior, the one who will destroy all sin from the earth because of his love, his perfection, and his holiness. This is the one who Paul must appear before, and this is the one we all must appear before. And it is all of us. All men, all women, poor people, cleaners, workers, secretaries, people that run businesses, politicians, presidents, kings, leaders of great religions, people that are alive now, everyone who was alive in the 20th century, and everyone who's ever lived in each of those centuries, way back, even the people who were alive at the time of the flood, people who were alive during the reigns of the kings of Israel, everyone who ever lived in the Chinese Empire, who ever lived in South America or Africa or North America, every man, every woman from all countries and races and creeds, no matter what religion they have believed, every single person that has ever lived, Paul says, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You will all be there. You will all be there. And man is numb to this today. He thinks it's make-believe, fable, hope. He does think these things. But the Bible says why he thinks these things and 
I think I have my own understanding of why men today think this. It doesn't bother me that most of the people I meet don't live in the reality of this because I see all around me confusion and I see many realities that are clear that people are shutting their eyes to and don't want to believe. I don't give any uh, credit to, to someone who says, I see no proof that I'll be judged and this sounds fantastical and unreal. Because people all around us today, they can't even look at a woman and say, that is a woman. They can't look at a man and say, that is a man. Everyone alive today knows for a fact that there's coming a day soon that they will die. And yet they live without the reality of that happening. Every one of us in here knows that in the next 100 years, we will all die, give or take. But we know that. We say we know it, but many of us from day to day, even myself or yourself, there are those times where you can't accept that fact and you act like it probably will not happen. And if it did happen, you would be shocked. There are many things that are plain and inevitable. If you are an atheist, you believe in evolution, you should be the one that's most conscious that you're going to die because that's what your religion teaches you. A godless religion says we're in this world, we decay, we fall into the soil, and that's it. You, of all people, should live with the reality that you're going to die. But if you got a phone call tomorrow from a test from the doctors that said you had cancer, or you found something out, or if someone you knew and someone you love was hit by a car tomorrow, you would not react and say, but it doesn't matter, we're all going to die anyway you would be shocked because you're not dealing with the reality that all of us can die and will die soon. This judgment is like that. If we can't live with the reality that we're even going to die, it's no wonder that a lot of us pretend that we wouldn't be judged. The Apostle Peter speaks about this in the Scriptures, about the day we live in. In the last days, he says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Second Peter chapter 3. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things just continue as they were from the beginning. And that's what people say. You witness to people or I can come to you and say to you, you have to deal with God, you have to accept Christ, you're going to be judged. And you'll say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is Jesus? Let him come down now and strike me with a bolt of lightning. And you play and you offend God and you make a mockery of it. But Peter says, but they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth was standing out of water and in the water. And the world that existed in the past was destroyed and flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. What Peter's uh, saying there is that people didn't believe that a flood was coming when they were told. They didn't believe that. And Peter says that today man willfully forgets that there was a flood. He looks at all the water on the earth and he says there wasn't a flood. 
He sees all the dead animals in the soil that archaeologists find all the time and he says, there wasn't a flood. He reads the Bible and it says there was a flood and he says, there wasn't a flood. He looks at the history of Egypt and Babylon and the Aborigines and the American Indians which all say in their books from their history all around the world that there was a flood and the British atheist says there wasn't a flood. You could pour a flood upon an atheist today and they would say there wasn't a flood. It's because they willfully forget that there was a flood. They don't want there to be a flood. A flood makes them uncomfortable. A flood says that there's a judging God, a God of the Old Testament that acts into history, and they can't have that. They don't want that in their life. So they say, things have just always been this way. But friend, they haven't always been this way. And there is coming a day soon that will be just as shocking and more shocking than the flood was. The day of judgment. If we don't even reckon with the reality of our own death, it's no wonder that we have our eyes shut to the reality of the judgment that's going to come. We feel so safe. We feel safe today. We don't deal with war. There aren't people coming into our homes and taking our homes from us. Things that our ancestors had to deal with that showed them how unstable and how much calamity there is in life. We don't have that. We have our heating, our cars, our jobs, our homes, our, our regularity, our electricity in our house, and we're pretending that we're okay, but we're not okay. We're not okay at all. There are earthquakes, there are tsunamis, there are disasters, there are just little blips that God sends to remind us that this isn't a safe world. We are not safe. I am not safe. A few miles below me, there is lava that would destroy me. We're standing on a ball of lava. And 20 miles up there, there is just empty space for billions and billions of miles in which nothing can live in. We're standing on the edge of a cliff. We're not safe. It feels safe, doesn't it? The earth is spinning hundreds of thousands of miles per hour through space and round the sun, and here we are sitting here saying, I'm safe, because God gives us the stability. We are not safe. How can I think I'm safe when that's below me, that's above me, and I know my body's decaying, and in 70 years I will definitely be dead? How, how can I feel safe, and how can you feel safe? You are not safe. And Paul says to us here that we must appear on that day before Christ and he tells us that it's to give an account that each one may receive what is due verse 10 when he says here that we must all appear he's saying that the truth about us will be known on that day we will be made manifest and transparent on that day. You could translate it, we will be turned inside out on that day. Something's hidden in cloth or in an object and you can fold it inside out to see what's really there. And that's the idea here. We will, our hearts and our lives and the way we've lived will be turned inside out on that day. And Paul says in another letter in Romans chapter 2 that on that day he will judge the secrets 
of men's hearts. So the day is coming, the great day of the Lord, that Christ has been appointed to judge all kinds of people, and everyone who's ever lived can't escape. They'll call on the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from Christ, and they will try and flee from his wrath, but they will be brought before him, everyone who's ever lived. We are not safe because our lives are sinful and our hearts on that day are going to be turned inside out. How will he judge us? It's very important that we know that. How will he judge us? He will judge us according, he will give us our due according to what he has done in the body, whether good or evil whether good or evil it's a moral judgment this judge is like the the magistrate in Glasgow or the judge in the high court in London cases are brought before him and he makes a decision about whether it was right or wrong or it was a crime that has been committed but this is much more than that this is someone who will judge us morally not for just breaking a law that the council or the courts has set but all moral law, the law of God. Our thoughts, our actions, our words. For we were made in God's image, and our words should be godly and pure, our thoughts should be godly and pure, and our actions should be godly and pure. We should love God completely, we should love our families completely, we should love all those we meet completely, and all of this without a double heart without it being tainted without our motives being mangled we must live righteously before God it's only the righteous who will be um, approved by Christ on that day those who are righteous none of us are thoughts, words and deeds whether good or evil, Paul says we will be judged by these works. Let's, let's, take two. let's take someone outside of Christ and someone inside of Christ. So someone outside of Christ. They will be judged by their works, whether they were good or evil. And you may say, there will be a few things wrong with me. But there's a lot good about me. God will understand. God is merciful and gracious. I'm not that bad. So if I say to you, (coughs) but he will condemn the wicked, you recoil from that and you say, I'm not wicked. That's a very strong word. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. I'm none of these things. That is wickedness. I have faults. I'll even say I'm a sinner, but I'm not wicked. Christ will say on that day, "Away away from me, you who practice lawlessness. And you say, that doesn't describe me. Christ will say, away from me, you workers of iniquity. And you say, that isn't me. I am not wicked. I am not lawless. I am not a worker of iniquity. I'm quite a nice person. But friend, 
You don't see yourself in the light of God. You don't see yourself the way he sees it. We are confused morally. We don't see moral things the way God intended us to see them when he created us. We make excuses. We are extremely deceptive. We reason things out in our hearts to make ourselves seem a lot better than we actually are. The truth is, all of us are lawless. All of us are lawless. There may be some laws that you think it's bad not to follow, and you say, I would never break that law. But when Christ says lawlessness, he's talking generally. There is a... When Christ tells you to love God with all your heart, you are not obeying that fully. When Christ tells you to respect and love other people, you don't obey that fully. When Christ tells you to be humble, you present yourself in a proud way. When he tells you to be patient and calm, you lash out in anger. When he tells your thoughts to be pure, you imagine encounters with other men and women that will satisfy your flesh. He tells you not to steal, and you say, I would never take money from someone. But we are all thieves. Uncomfortable as that is, we are thieves. We steal God's glory. We steal time from God. We steal everything he's given to us. He gave you life. He gives you breath. He makes the sun shine on your skin. He gives you food in your fridge. He's given you a car. He's given you a job. He's given you a, a clarity of mind that you don't have problems with your personality and your mind so that you have to be in a mental institution. You can think. You can live your day. He's given you a warm home. He's given you a wife or a husband. He's given you children that give, bring you joy. He's put you in relationships to, with people and these people bring you happiness. He's given you eyes to see. You can feel things with your hands. You can taste food and you can go to sleep at night and wake up and say, I had a good sleep. He gives you all of that. And you act like it's yours. You act like you have a right to it and you never get on your knees and thank God for it or thank Christ for it. If you're outside of Christ, if you have not repented, if you have not turned to God, if you have not relinquished your own rebellious and proud life, if you have not acknowledged your sin and said, I need a saviour, I need the cross, I need to be made right, I need to know this Father, I need the Holy Spirit, I need to change. If you haven't done any of that, you are standing, refusing Christ, and you are taking every gift he's given you that belongs to him in the world that he's made. You eat his meat, you eat his vegetables, you drink his water, you bask in his sunshine, and you don't even acknowledge that he's giving it to you. You are a thief. And I also am a thief. When I don't thank Christ for these things, I, he puts out his hand and I grab it out of his hand and I walk away and say, thank you very much. And I don't acknowledge him and respect him and thank him in the way that I should for even giving me one of these things. So when Christ says, away from me you who practice lawlessness, 
don't deceive yourself and say that you are lawful and that you follow God's law. He tells you to love God and you don't want to do that. He tells you to renounce the world and not live for the world. He tells you to live for Christ and you wouldn't do it. He calls you to repentance. I mentioned water and sunshine in these things. He gave his son and his son is set before you in this place each week. His son is precious, only begotten son. His most valuable thing is set before you in the preaching each week. He gives his son and you are refusing his salvation. You say, he's not real. I don't need that. I like my life the way it is. I'm in control. And you're, he tells you, repent and believe the gospel and you say no. And that is lawless. That is wicked. It is foolish. That is a work of iniquity. You will receive what is due for what you do in this body, whether good or evil. Then there's the believer. There's also a a kind of judgment of works for the believer. We usually recoil at that thought because it is all of grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. And we are saved and justified by faith, not by any of our works. But when you listen to the words of Jesus and you read Paul, they bring before us that on that day, the way that we've lived our life is, is not without consequence. It, it's not, um, it's not um, irrelevant. You'll remember that in Matthew 25, when, when, when a passage that I never really understood... In Matthew 25, Christ tells the disciples, when he's preaching about the judgment, he tells his disciples that at the end of time, all the earth will be gathered before the Son of Man on the throne of his glory. And I'm expecting to see a judgment there, that the lost will be judged for all of their works of iniquity, but the Christians will be accepted in because of their faith in Christ and their love for Christ. But Jesus says... Um, you didn't give me something to drink you didn't visit me in prison and he lists these things that weren't done and then he says to the Christians you did visit me in prison you did give me something to drink you did give me clothes and the people in the parable say when did we do that to you? when did we give you these things? and Jesus says when you do that to the least of my brethren my brothers and sisters and in other words Christians you have done it to me so Jesus says that the, the way we treat each other is considered on the day of judgment. Whether we give each other a, a cup of cold water, whether we visit each other in prison if we're arrested for being Christians, whether we give the clothes off our back onto your back when you have nothing. Jesus says that's really important. It seems so unimportant, but it's very important. Jesus also says in Matthew's Gospel, what has been said in the inner rooms will be shouted from the rooftops and we will be judged or justified by our words. We will be justified by our words. What he's saying is, and what Paul's saying here, is that when we are brought before Christ on the day of judgment, the things we have done will bear some resemblance and consistency with what we have professed to be. 
So we say, we say, I'm a Christian. I love Christ. We say, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. We knew you. We believed in you. We were members of the church. And Christ will say, I can see that you were. Because it was evident in your life. Your faith is real. This is how you ministered to the saints. This is how you treated others. This is how you prayed. This is how you worshipped. The life of a Christian will bear a resemblance to what they say they believe. If you say you believe in God, and you say you love Christ, then that means you're going to be putting into practice commands that Christ gives you. They will be imperfect. They will be full of infirmity. They will even have sin in them a lot of the time. But the works will be there because you did them for Christ's sake. These works don't give us any merit. These works aren't the reason we're saved. But Paul says we will be given account and we will receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. There will be a resemblance. If I'm in Christ, Christ will look at my life and there will be a theme in my life. A real theme. And it will correspond to what Christ commanded me to do. If it doesn't look anything like what Christ commanded me to do, I am pretending that I am a Christian. So there is a way in which the works are considered. But they don't earn us the entrance into glory. And when that day comes, and I pray it will be soon, when that day comes, and you, man, or you, woman, my brother and sister, when we are called by the voice of Christ as we wait in line, and we are called before him, we will, our entrance will be not on our own works and merits, but on the righteousness of Christ that I mentioned this morning. The unbeliever will point out his life to Christ. And he'll say, I wasn't that lawless. And look at this thing I did, and that thing I did. And I was good to people. And I was a good member of society. And Christ says, I won't hear any of it away from me. You practiced lawlessness. You rejected me. You did not accept my gospel. You had no faith in me. You didn't take up your cross and follow me. You did not lean on me. I was not your saviour. The Christian walks before Christ. And the Christian says, this life is tainted and dirty. My prayers and my worship and that time I did evangelism and the way I was with my family. There's all these inconsistencies. And it's not so impressive. There's so much sin. And Jesus will say, but there is faith. You trusted in my righteousness. And next to Christ is the righteousness that he worked out from you, for you that we mentioned this morning. The perfect work, the perfect prayers, the perfect worship, the deep penetrating reading of scripture, the joy in his heart, his love and openness and willingness and quickness to obey the Father. 
his dealing with other people, his burden for the lost, his tears for Jerusalem, his tears for the world, his prayers for his people, the way he lived, the way he died, his patience with us all, his perfect God-like life, his godly life, that when the law of God is listed in the Ten Commandments, the other commandments and all the calls of the New Testament, when all, everything Paul says in his letters, all of these commands, when they're all listed next to Jesus, everyone is gold, everyone is glowing, everyone has been obeyed lovingly. He wasn't, he, he, it wasn't just teeth-gritted determination for him. He was determined, but there was a loving willingness and ability to obey it all. That righteousness of God... And when you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, you have the confidence that Paul has here. He wants this judgment seat. He wants it to come. He's tired. He's weary. He's broken. He tells the Philippians to depart and be with Christ is better than this. But it might be needed that I must stay here now. But I don't fully like it. Paul wants this. And you and I can be liberated in our hearts even tonight as Christians, to want this. To stand before the face of the Christ from whom the heaven and earth flee away and the godless run for cover. And yet when you look in his face, you see one who saved you. The face you try to see every morning in your prayers, you will finally see. And he beckons you in approved at the judgment not because your, your Christian life proves that you were a Christian, yes but the reason you are legally allowed to enter in as we sang in the Psalm 118 this is the gate of God the just shall enter in he has made you just and you see him in love and he says to you Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Do you glory in those things, Christian? Do you glory that you have that tonight? That though you see your sin, that's a good thing. Though you are troubled by it, that is a good thing. You cry and you ask for forgiveness and you're tired of the same old sins. That is a good thing if you can recognize that. Your life will contain sin until you die. But it's not how successful your life is at the moment that determines what happens at that seat. What, what happens at that seat is that Jesus saved you. He shall save his people from their sins. You cannot save yourself from your sins. And when you walk in, etched above the door on the way in, it says, He who justifies the ungodly. For the ungodly become the godly through Christ. Though there was ungodliness in your life, you are the just, and you enter in the gates of righteousness, because the sacrifice was tied to the horns of the altar. That's what awaits the Christian the unbeliever has stood at the judgment seat and his works or her works are lifted up before God 
they look okay to them but the glory and the light of God's face shines upon them and the reality of what they are are seen they think they're healthy their body looks healthy and they stand before Christ at the judgment seat and he fires up his x-ray machine and you see all of the sinful and excuse me for this but the sinful tumours in our spiritual bodies stop saying you're good if you're not in Christ the x-ray machine will shock you this is serious the believer will be justified by the grace of Christ and let me close with this but if you're not in Christ you must take this seriously Paul says in verse 11 therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others and in older versions of the Bible it was the word terror that was there you'll know the word it's the word phobia that's a Greek word phobia when you're afraid or awestruck or terrified by something and it's used throughout the Bible not just for the Christian who fears God in the right way but for the ungodly who see God coming in judgment and they run for their lives from God they are terrified of him they are terrified of his judgments like the Egyptians that fleed from the judgments of God and like in the book of Revelation when the earth is convulsed and all the people in the world are in utter terror you know you see it on the news and when people are actually terrified of something and you see the clip of them running from the wave or running from the vehicle or running from the man with the gun and they're screaming they're terrified Paul warns us here knowing the terror of the Lord we persuade men for to stand before Christ at his judgment with no faith in him living a life in which you pretended that, you'd, that God wasn't there or that you didn't owe God anything Paul says that although he loves Christ although he has peace with Christ and he looks forward to this he tells us why he still preaches and he tells me why I should preach and he tells you why you should take this seriously because of the terror and the fear of God and to stand before the judge of all the earth who is perfectly holy is no straightforward thing we want to diminish it and make it comfortable like in Acts when, An when Ananias and Sapphira were professing Christians they probably were Christians and everyone was bringing their money to the apostles and Ananias and Sapphira decided privately that they would sell their house but keep a lot of the money from, from, for themselves which was fine because they owned the house but they took the rest of the money and they went in a church and they kind of proclaimed to everyone that we sold our house and this is all the money for the house so they made themselves look a lot more sacrificial than they were you would think well that's bad you'd get taken before the session for that but you definitely wouldn't go to hell for it you wouldn't die for it Peter says to them why did you lie against the Holy Spirit and the husband fell down dead before Peter before the preacher of grace the gracious man Peter he fell down dead and they carried the man's body it happened in the church it happened during a service 
Let's not diminish the reality of God's judgment. Even in this very letter, friend, even in this very letter, Paul admonishes ministers in this letter. I think it's in chapter 3, or is it in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4? But in writing to the Corinthians, he admonishes ministers. And we don't have this today. What we say is, if you're really a Christian, relax. Don't be terrified. Don't worry about standing before Christ. You can't be judged because Jesus got you a get-out-of-jail-free card and you're safe. It's all the people out there that need to worry when they meet God, but we're okay. Paul says to ministers when he's writing to the Corinthians that they are not conducting their ministry properly even though they themselves are saved. They're not conducting it properly. They're doing foolish things. They're not teaching with the fullness that they should. And he says that instead of building the church with gems and precious stones, that they're building it with hay and stubble. And he says of a Christian minister who is really a Christian, not a false Christian, a real Christian, he says their works will be burned up and they will be saved, but yet as through fire. And I think the idea is there, they're just saved. It's almost like the fire is almost at their heels. Like when Lot ran from Sodom and Gomorrah and he just got out. He was a Christian, he was saved. The fire was right, he was just saved. And we have this diluted evangelicalism today that says that you believe in Jesus, you become a member of the church and relax, everything's fine. It's not fine. The way we are of, as consequences, if you're really a Christian and you're accommodating all the sin and compromise and you're not growing, you're not exercising your gifts and your graces, you're not reading the word, you're just sitting there and saying, well I'm fine, it's kind of like a 60 year waiting room until I get into heaven. You might be saved just as through fire and you might be surprised when you stand before Christ. He might show you his love, he might say you're justified, but you might be surprised at what he says to you. It's a shame that you did that in 2014. You should not have done that. I love you. Who, who are we to say what he will and won't say? Just because he's going to bring you into heaven, it does not mean he's going to point out what a complete hash you made of your life. If you do that, you might be saved as through fire. And for the non-Christian, there wouldn't be any grace and justification. If he treats even the apostle and makes the apostle speak about fear, how much more should the non-Christian, the unbeliever, tremble? Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He said he preached in Corinth with fear and much trembling. Paul trembled preaching to these people, and he uses the same word and tells us, friend, if you will not submit to Christ and love and obey and believe in him, tremble if you stood before King Jong-un or, or you were on holiday in Africa and one of these African tyrants grabbed you into custody and you thought he was going to take off your wrists with a sword you would tremble what about the judge of all the, the earth who demands perfect holiness and purity and faith in his son and you're going to show up there and say I didn't know enough or I didn't know I had to believe and I didn't know you 
friend, you need to do this now. And I'm going to close with one comment. He says in this passage, we read it this morning, now is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. And we plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, tonight, tonight is the night of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. We don't know when he's going to come. We don't know when the car is going to come round the corner. We don't know when your body's just going to break down and you just die on the spot because of a heart condition. Now is the day of salvation and we plead with you on behalf of the Saviour and the great shepherd of the sheep who pleads and goes after lost sheep. He pleads with you tonight to believe in his name for your life to be flipped upside down for you to be a Christian for you to know God for all your sins to be washed away and for you to be able to live a godly life in fellowship and in grace and in following Christ and for you to have peace and confidence that when you stand before God and when this world comes to an end you're not going to end with it you can live you can live you can have eternal life right now Christ is holding out eternal life to you and you can exchange all your lawlessness for this eternal life to live forever in love for Christ we plead with you on his behalf now do it now because today is the day when it's brought before you and you must respond for we must all be turned inside out before the judgment seat of Christ and he'll give us what we're due and you don't want him to give you what you're due if you're not a Christian you don't it will be awful you will plummet into darkness you will wail you will be eternally depressed you will never experience the emotion of joy again you will never see light you will be in the presence of the kingdom of darkness or anyone who has ever awfully lived in this world they will be your bedfellow in that place you will be outside the blessing of God and the only thing you'll know about God is his anger towards you you do not want to play around with that friend he will give you what you're due and you're standing on a cliff and he's extending his hand out to you and he's telling you to believe in Christ and to receive eternal life it's a wonderful thing to see God's glory as we've seen in these passages it will be another thing to see the glory of his justice and his judgment which one of these glories are we all going to see Amen. May God impress these things upon our needy hearts.